Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Wide Marketing Podcast. My name is Rusty Pepper, and my guest today is Scott Newman, the Vice President of Marketing at Calix. Their platforms connect the world. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks, Rusty. Before we talk about what you're doing now over at Calix, I was hoping you could share with us your background and how you got into marketing in the first place. Sure. You know, you could chalk it up almost to a little bit of a nature and nurture. Growing up, I had an older sister. She went into marketing, classic marketing, uh, consumer packaged goods, started her career out at Procter & Gamble. And then my father was in consulting. He was a partner at McKinsey for a number of years. So between the consulting angle, the marketing angle, it was a logical fit for me to be a communications major uh, as an undergrad. And then coming out of school thinking, well, uh, I've got kind of the basics of marketing and communication. What better place to cut my teeth than uh, in advertising? So that was my next step. And I uh, went out to San Francisco, started knocking on doors. And my first job was as an assistant media planner at J. Walter Thompson working on Baby Ruth Candy Bar, you know, of all, uh, of all products. It was in love candy. Yeah, exactly. And oddly, the, the, the backstory in that is it's got nothing to do with Babe Ruth, by the way. You know, it was Grover Cleveland's uh, daughter. Really? Uh, was her nickname, Baby Ruth. Yeah, so completely, you know, most people don't know that. So that started, you know, my, my foray into marketing. I eventually worked around a number of accounts, worked my way from media planning into account management. And I started working in high tech. I started working on accounts like Novell, Logitech, and Informix. And it was the rate and pace of the industry that initially got me. And I started thinking about, you know, this is actually pretty exciting. It's not, you know, 18 months to two years working on packaging and promotion and getting it on the shelf. I mean, there's this gigantic cycle for the physical goods. But technology was changing, you know, every month, almost every week. So that, that got me hooked. The other piece, though, that was an eye-opener is when I started to get familiar with what was happening in the market and the decisions that are required to have a really good marketing strategy, the agency is only one slice of that story. And there were some huge decisions that were being made about you know, the competition and the future of the portfolio and what they were going to build and how they were going to build it and who they wanted to reach and why before they even showed up at our door and said, help us take this up to market. And I wanted to be part of those decisions as well. And for anyone that's worked in uh, advertising agencies, it's a tricky relationship and you tend to be kept at arm's length until you're needed. So I decided I needed to, to, to get to that side of the, of the fence. So I went back to business school with a goal of majoring in marketing and then focused specifically on high tech. And of all places I land in the, uh, the summer of 1999 is IBM, which was going through a bit of a transformation of its own. And it was right on the edge of the dot-com bubble. So it was a pretty crazy time for those that might recall. And I would say the number one reason why IBM, for me, came to the forefront. It was the first tech company that said, look, we've got technologists. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting somebody with a PhD. That's not the issue. The issue is we're trying to recruit marketing talent that have a passion for the technology, but we're not asking you to go in your interview and take apart a server and put it back together. We have people for that. We need you to be empathetic. We need you to represent our buyer and help us develop a go-to-market message. And that was, for me, very refreshing because I wasn't you know, a computer scientist as an undergrad, but I had a passion for it. But I also had a background in how to think about 
solving business issues in complex situations. So that really launched me. And that was you know 18 years of my career all over parts of, of IBM until I uh, landed at Calix about a year ago. Gotcha. So you said your sister went through the traditional advertising, right. but it wasn't something that you really initially thought about. Yeah, I would say the... You know, marketing, whether it was applied to consumer packaged goods or not, I mean, another tidbit of experience, between my first and second year in business school, I spent a summer at Nabisco and I was working on A1 steak sauce. Now, I did that specifically because I still wanted to get the rigor and the training that they were known for and really understand, you know, the product segmentation and research focus groups and all of that. But I always knew in the back of my mind that I'd like to apply it to, to technology. I think what really hooked me, and I can't remember exactly when this kind of light bulb went off, but I started to, to, you know, it was one of those just little by little creeping in when you realize this is a wonderful balance of art and science. You know, there's, there's elements of marketing that are getting more and more automated. And that's a good thing. Right. Um, because a lot of the things, I mean, I remember what I used to do early on, I mean, the spreadsheet crunching and the analysis and so forth is becoming incredibly simplified in real time, which is great because honestly, those are the things that A, weren't that exciting to do and B, took a while to complete. So now they're at your fingertips to make better decisions faster. But I don't see marketing ever becoming reduced to just an algorithm and plug it in. There's always going to be an art angle. I mean, people that coming out of a fine arts degree, for example, have a lot to contribute to a marketing profession because you're always thinking about the balance of user design and experience. At the end of the day, you're reaching people. You know, you're not trying to engage another buying bot and then you know have them negotiate. There's always going to be human on the other side, and yep. there's always going to be a mix between logic and emotion, depending on what they go with, and and that's. That's an interesting element. And that's what makes, I think, marketing so exciting. Yeah, yeah, because no doubt that when you look at the, you know, for consumer behavior, algorithms can help you kind of understand patterns, but sure. it doesn't help you understand emotion. And, and yeah. what, what is that trigger point that's going to make somebody buy? And typically, there's a story in the way it's being presented to the consumer. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I've run into a situation where we're trying to create a pitch for a, a certain client and everything makes sense. But then what we miss or could miss is, oh, by the way, their new CIO came from company X. That is an influencing background. Now, let's say they had a negative experience at their former company with you know IBM or whoever was working with at the time. They bring that with them. They can't not. And that has to be accounted for. And there's no algorithm that's going to say, oh, by the way, there's an emotional angle of baggage that they're bringing into this conversation. And you're going to have to overcome that if you want to win the deal. Yeah. And that could also sway the other way too. It could be a less talented organization or a worthy organization, but because there was a perception from somebody else that's making the decision, exactly. they've got the hammer to make that happen. Right. And you could, you could have the best product in the world, but if they don't feel it, yeah, they're out. Get it. You're right. That's well. That's always the trick for the marketer. You know, obviously, you spent you said eighteen years at IBM. Eighteen years, yeah. Wow. So, I know you spent some time working internationally as a CMO for them. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a it was a mix of, and that was one of the things that kept me there for that long. I mean, think of it as like a gigantic mall of jobs, right? <laughs> I mean, there's. 
there's there's always something interesting around the corner. I spent time in corporate marketing and headquarters. I spent time marketing their consulting services and their industry practices. I was in the software group working on collaboration solutions and what used to be the Lotus brand uh, and that acquisition space. I spent time bundling solutions, hardware, software, and services for specific market segments. And then I spent uh, about four and a half years uh, overseas. I was living in Prague, which was the headquarters for Central and Eastern Europe. And so as the CMO for, for that region, it was about 30 countries spanning Russia, all of the Eastern former Eastern Bloc countries down to Turkey. And so you can imagine the, you know, the variety of markets and cultures and challenges and even socioeconomic and political issues that I, you, know, you struggle with as you're trying to think of this as one region. It's just one region on somebody's map. But you know, as a market, it is unique. So I had a team of you know, a little over 200 people spread all over in the region. They were all locals and trying to figure out how do we do a, a kind of a methodical approach to marketing. And one of the eye-opening things for me is I had spent up until that point working and living in the United States and developing global strategies that were being caught by my former counterparts in these regions. And it's easy, you know, at a, as a global level to think, well, what are the big markets I need to really nail? I got to get Japan, I got to get Western Europe, I get North America, and I'm like 80% of the way there. And then the rest are kind of rounding errors because there's no gigantic one. And so let's just try the one size fits all. And then I get to the other side of the table and I swivel back and look at what's coming down the, you know, the, the pike for me to execute. Like there's no way I can pull that off. Like this is way too complicated because every business unit is now showing up in my door going, here's my 12-step plan for you to drive this little piece of the portfolio. I could do three things really, really well. There's no way I'm going to do 24. And so that forced a realization for me when I went back to a global role. And the last role that I had was doing global strategies for applying Watson to the Internet of Things, which is a fascinating role, and spent time launching our brand new headquarters in Munich, which is the first IBM headquarters outside of the United States that we've ever opened. But because at the time, Germany was such the epicenter for the industrial side of IoT. And then, but it made me a better marketer because then when I started developing those plans and then delivering those recommendations out to the regions, I was always thinking about what I felt like. And I started to simplify and make this just much easier to digest and execute and measure. So, you know, I, I was setting them up for success rather than saying, here, kid, you know, take it and run with it. So it, that was a realization. And so a recommendation would be anyone who has an opportunity to spend some time internationally, do it, especially from a marketing perspective, because this is about culture. You know, this is about teaming. This is about you know, political barriers, all of that. You could go visit. And, and that's great. I mean, start there. But you know, spending a week or two weeks in country is not really working internationally. You really want to put some boots on the ground. So if you get that opportunity, take it. I think that's great advice. It sounds like really working internationally also made you more empathetic to how those folks that are running those regions, especially the smaller ones, how many different languages were you having to deal with over? I mean, you had what, 30 oh, countries, did you say? Yeah. Yeah. 30 countries. I mean, everything from, you know, Russia and, you know, kind of the derivations of that into the, the Slavic based languages, which, you know, are, are the roots for Polish, Czech, you know, Bulgarian. I mean, and there's an element of understanding to an extent. And so it wasn't too hard to pick up the basics. There's a lot of like, you know, Dobre den, which would be good day, or Dien Dobre, which was the same thing, but for another language, same thing. 
one, it's incredibly hard to pick up. My daughter at the time joked when we went to go visit Italy for the first time, she lands in the airport and she's looking at all the signs in Italian and she turns and she goes, daddy, so this is where all the vowels went because they literally are like, most of them are gone because in the Slavic languages, consonants carry a vowel sound in their pronunciation. So they don't have to stick vowels in there for those sounds. So you see like six, six consonants in a row and you're looking at going, I have no idea how to pronounce that coming from an English background. But, you know, an interesting story, I remember trying to figure out how to do a series of events that we were doing in the former Yugoslavian. So you've got, you know, Croatia, you've got Albania, you've got Slovenia. So you you can imagine that there's there's all sorts of geopolitical tensions, right? And so as, as a global marketer, you're coming and going, look, they're all within like a three to four hour drive or a very short plane flight why don't we just do one large event in the largest city in the area, right? Rather than do five smaller ones for one and a half times the cost, right? So logically you think, all right, no problem. Culturally, no way, right? Because these guys are not going to say, well, wait a minute. No, no, no. Yes, I'm based in Zagreb, but I'm not going to drive two hours over there to go across the border to a much bigger event because I'm not going to do business in that country, right? I mean, so there were a lot of political sensitivities thinking about you know, how they approach their buyer, right? So, you know, so imagine, you know, the best way to think about it is imagine that the 50 states that we have in the U.S. were all individual countries. Yeah. Now do a national marketing plan, you know, with multiple languages ever. And you're thinking, wow, that, that's just, there's no one size fits all. So everyone presented their own, their own challenges. The one thing IBM did bring, though, is the street cred that it had as a brand still resonated. And so that concept, the old saying of no one ever got fired for hiring IBM, still kind of wrote, rang true. You know, there were some sensitivities of trying to buy local, especially in Russia. But for the most part, that got you in the door. But you still had to solve the problem. And yeah. so that came back to the cores of marketing. It's not about what we sell. It's about what we help solve. And if you can't do that, then you've got a really hard marketing strategy to execute. That is so well said, and I agree with you 100%. So let, let's stay on that topic. So you've got, you're responsible for 30 different countries over Central and Eastern Europe. You've got all these different countries, languages, cultures that you're having to manage through. That had to present an immense number of challenges. So as a leader over these markets, how did you manage and navigate through that? Well, it was... You know, it was interesting. All of the GMs, at least that I knew of, going back like three or four, none of them were from the region. They were all international assignees. And so you can imagine, you know, because of all of the not so, you know, distant political issues, it'd be tricky, you know, to have, you know, it, even when it's, you know, within IBM, you know, you have someone, you know, GM of the entire region who's Russian, you know, who's now overseeing and managing teams, you know, in former Soviet bloc countries, or, you know, someone who's Polish or someone who's, you know, Czech. So those were still there. And and when I was the CMO, it overlapped when Crimea was, was invaded. And so you can imagine it was right around then where we were doing, you know, our annual sales kickoff. And so, you know, I've got teams in Kiev, I got teams in Moscow. And I'm getting them together in the same room. And it's you know, right on the back end of that hitting the news. And so you can imagine just in the room, these are IBMers. This is not like a political summit. These are not representatives of the country. However, personally, it was tense. 
Wow. And, you know, one pulled me aside from the Ukraine and said, Scott, look, I, thanks for trying to understand, but you'll never truly understand because you're American and you've never had your country invaded. And I said, you're right. You're absolutely right. I don't know what that's like. And I don't know what you're going through. But we've also got to keep, you know, try to keep it one layer up. Because if, if this is a, well, you guys are on that side of the room, you guys are on this side, you don't, you know, overlap and so forth. You can imagine all of the other slippery slope rules and, you know, all of a sudden a global company, and this wouldn't be just IBM, this is any global company. How do you manage, you know, geopolitical sensitivities within your own culture when you have that exact same representation? right? Your company kind of looks like the UN anyway. Yeah. That's hard. And so from a leadership perspective, you know, being fair, being consistent, making sure that it's, it's not seen or perceived that there's any favoritism related to whatever your current background is. I was never so conscious of it than when I was over there. And do you think that just that the learning curve to becoming from leadership, just to having to deal with all those sensitivities? Yeah. That had to have a huge influence on, on where you are and how your career continued to evolve. Yeah, I, I think I think that was my, you know, as a marketer, you always need to have your kind of empathetic gene turned on because you're thinking about and you're representing your customer or your client internally. It's one of the things that I used to tell new hires into IBM when I was helping with their onboarding program. And I'd say, you're going to find yourself in a boardroom with a whole bunch of IBMers sitting around. And they're all going to have their role and, and, and what they're trying to get done in that meeting. Chances are, you're the only person whose number one job is to represent the customer, not some internal you know, challenge, supply chains or finance or whatever it is. And you've got to stay true to that. That goes with whatever you're doing in marketing. But when I was stationed in Europe, I also had to have that empathy gene turned on for my team and the inner workings between them. And, and that was, you know, very much a, a, you know, kind of a crash course in how to do that among your team. Because, you know, you're used to just managing a, a team based in the US, even if they're remote. Yeah, for the most part, there's none of that comes up, right? It's not, you know, kind of, well, you know, she's from Tennessee and he's from California. It's like, you know, no, we're not dealing with that, right? It's not nearly the level, right? So, so that forced from a leadership, from a coaching perspective, from a mentoring perspective, I really had to exercise, you know, that part of, of my skill set and make it stronger just to survive that role. Well, I think something that also was interesting is the fact that you joined IBM at what, 1999? Yeah. You know, that's back in the uh, at the height of the dot com craze, and I, and I remember it well. I mean, you know, all these startups that were being fueled by insane amount of venture money. They were offering perks that nobody had ever been offered before. Stock options. You're going to be rich, right? You're going to go public. You're going to be rich. And, ooh, we all heard the stories. We all remember them. You know, you're coming out into that job market. How did you navigate those waters? and not be lured into the temptation of the startups and ultimately decide on working with IBM? Probably two factors. One, you know, I knew there was a learning opportunity that I could pick up, especially from a technology perspective, from IBM. So you know, I knew they had that. They had the rigor. They had the investment in the infrastructure to train me, to you know, send me to all sorts of you know, different exercises and you know, deep dive courses and so forth, as well as being mentored by you know, some of the best in the business. The other is, 
maybe it was a little bit being risk averse. You, you didn't really know what you were going to get jumping into a startup. You know, you could say, "Hey, I'm the senior vice president of business development." You know, with three people in the room. <laughs> what you're really doing is you're running around answering the phone because you, you haven't hired a receptionist yet, right? So you know, you got to figure out like, well, uh, there's inbound calls. Somebody's got to do that. So I wanted to make sure there was at least some rigor I was jumping into that I could bring my marketing skill to and, and pick that up. But there was also an element, and I did believe it. This is you know, one of Lou Gerstner's, I think, most interesting speeches when he was the CEO, when he talked about this concept of the kind of the fireflies before the storm. And there was right around that time where you know, all of the hype just before the bubble kind of burst on the over kind of inflation and of expectations, he said, this is nothing. What you're just starting to see now and the whole kind of browser and, hey, somebody might actually buy a book right? You know, online. Whoa, right? It's like, look, this is, this is the, just the beginning. This is going to fundamentally change how we do business. And people are like, business? Like, business is going to buy stuff over the web? Like, what? Are you kidding? But that was the whole concept, you know, e-business on demand. I mean, you know, what started to take off after that? So that was a really interesting ride to be part of. And it was just starting at that time. And that sounded really exciting to be part of it. And so I'd say those are probably the two biggest factors that had me lean that way to give it a start. And to be honest, like anybody else coming out of business school, I was thinking, yeah, I'll be here two, three years. You know, I'll, I'll get the, you know, the logo on my resume and I'll be on to something else. By the time I left, I think I could count on two fingers, other classmates of mine from my graduating class that were still with the company they joined right out of business school. Wow. Almost everybody was, you know, onto something else or onto their third or fourth or fifth role in another company. Yeah. So. No, it, folks that went into and joined the startup world. Yeah. Folks that I know that that world, unless they just had crazy success and cashed out, it seems like their tenure is typically two to three years and they're yeah. on to something else. It seems like a lot of them too also kind of follow each other. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I had the privilege of working with a few through acquisitions that IBM brought in. And, you know, they were like literally the day the, the thing punched, you know, one year, two years, whatever their you know, agreement was being acquired, they were out the door. And they would say, Scott, look, I'm a serial CEO. And I, you know, I need to go start something else now. That's what I do. I can't be, you know, a, a regional vice president or head of business unit in a bigger company. It's just not how I tick. I need to be that guy and I'm gone. Okay. I mean, then, you know, it just depends on, you know, what you, what makes you tick. Yeah. Hope you like to move. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now let's talk, I guess, you know, I, I want to talk about Calyx and kind of your, okay. what, what you're doing there. Yeah. I think as I, when I introduced, when I did the introduction, I was talking about Calyx and how y'all connect the world. Explain what Calyx does. And it's a movie that, you know, as we were talking about IBM, this is a movie I've seen before. This is a really interesting company that was founded in 99. So it's been around for a while. It's not a startup. It's gone through a massive transformation. It's, you know, kind of roots were all about the networking equipment and gear that help make communication service providers operate, right? I mean, we help build their networks. You so know, like whether it's... Ease the, exactly. Right. So there's the tier ones would be, you know, the Verizons, the AT&Ts, the Comcast, you know, that, that do that. Then there are some regional players we refer to as a tier two you know, like a CenturyLink, you know, that have multi-state footprints. And then you've got tier threes, which are, you know, a couple, you know, thousand regional small players. Many of these are electric utilities that are getting into the broadband business, or these are just local telephone companies 
And they're all different shapes and sizes. Some are using, you know, kind of a wireless infrastructure tower to tower because they're out in the middle of nowhere in Northeast Montana. And there's no way you're going to lay fiber for, you know, hundreds of miles. It just doesn't work that way. So you go tower to tower and then you drop it down into, you know, fiber to the home. So all of that equipment was the, the bedrock of the company. And so our CEO, Carl Russo, saw, you know, way out in front and spent the last six to eight years fundamentally creating a way to transform the market. And it's basically applying a cloud and software-based solution approach to what has been a very hardware-centric network model. And so if you've ever dealt with network outages, not just, you know, hey, Wi-Fi is down because, you know, the, a tree fell on the, on the, on the, the branch, on the wires outside, but it's, you know, overnight, traditionally the way to add upgrades to a network is you've got to reboot it. Right. So the analogy is imagine if every time an app on your iPhone needed to update, your phone rebooted. Oh. You'd never be able to use your phone. Right. Yeah. So the concept is we separated the software from the hardware and yeah. this concept of what we call containerized. So those updates and, and enhancements to the network can be done, you know, in, in its own little container and it's separate from the hardware. So the network stays on. But then you turn on a new element and turn on a new element. So it's a, it's a, a DevOps software-driven model that is changing the way that people manage a network. And this is now carrying all the way into the home. And so now my background in artificial intelligence and internet of things and applying that to the smart home of the future is a really nice you know, kind of dovetail as to well, now how do I take this out to consumers? And how do you bring that same kind of network intelligence and create what is a, you know, a delightful experience. Because I think anyone who's starting to play with connected devices in their homes, it's not quite there yet. It's still the wild west and having a really clean, connected, secure, which is critical and easily managed experience. You know, that's, that's a challenge, but the, the, the communication service providers are in a perfect position to be in the lead. They've had the relationship. They've been there the whole time. The problem is, you know, their device, their what we, you know, refer to as, you know, there's the the ONTs and the OLTs. These are network terminals that are on one end at the central office and then it's the device that's on the outside of the home or up on the telephone pole into the router in your home. How many of you have a router sitting in the middle of your kitchen table? Nobody. Yeah. But you have an Alexa, right? You know, or you might have, you know, Google. Okay. So, you know, these these brands have come in over the top and they've inserted themselves into the relationship into the home. So, in a sense, they've relegated many of these providers to just providing the internet connectivity. And that's it, no other value. There's an opportunity for them to take back that relationship with the subscriber. And so, long story short, Calix is in a position where we're arming them with everything that they need to help grow, elevate the brand, their revenue, uh, the experience of their subscribers, at the same time, dramatically simplify and optimize their network. It's a brand you'll probably never hear of if you're not in this industry because we're behind the scenes. You're like Oz. Exactly. The subscriber will never see necessarily a box or a device or a system or solution in their home that has Calyx with a brand on it. It'll be rebranded by whomever the provider is. That's by design. But our goal is to help them you know, make their experience and their business model better. And that's a really interesting conversation to have. And in a sense, we're transitioning what was a 
hardware-centric company into a cloud platform and software-driven company. You know, that's a really good place to be, you know, in terms of where this industry is about to tip. Right. Well, it's just the way everything is going now. I mean, everything, yeah. is, everything is cloud-based. So how does your role and your focus on a day-to-day to help, I guess, you're evolving the story. You're probably having to do a lot of storytelling. Yeah. Marketing efforts. Uh, right. What are the different channels that work best for you guys? So, you know, digital is still, you know, paramount. You know, that is our front door. Right. So it's that experience. And it's it's a little bit of a challenge too, because you've got multiple roles that have to find their sweet spot within the Calix.com environment. You have some very, very technical engineers that are looking for specific things, as well as general managers of some of these, you know, uh, re- regional providers that are looking for more of the you know business acumen and, and what are the elements that help me grow revenue. And it's not necessarily down to a data sheet. So it's a pretty wide stretch of potential customers. So there's digital. We are a, you know, for the vast majority, we are an inside sales force. So, you know, we have our own sales teams that have those relationships, have been working with these customers for decades. The benefit there is there is already a very strong relationship that puts Calix in a position, not as a vendor, but as a strategic partner. That's always, you know, as you try to position yourself as no matter what business you're in, it helps, you know, from a B2B perspective, because we're not talking about impulse buys, you know, at the checkout counter at the supermarket. You know, these are complex solutions, you know, know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. um, And you've got multiple people that are part of it influencing that decision. So it's, it's a complex discussion. The more you can position yourself as a company, as a trusted partner, a strategic partner, that your your goals and their goals are aligned, then you've got some really, really interesting opportunities. But if you're always relegated to, well, just give me whatever you can for the cheapest price possible, and that's my bidding war, that is a losing proposition. You don't want to find yourself in that position. The strength of our field sales team allows us to have that strategic partnership discussion and then back it up digitally. And you'll see that you know, across the Calix portfolio and everything, just about everything that we put out through our press wire, our Elevate posts and our social channels, they're leading with, come hear about customer X and what they're able to do. We lead with their success because that's our success. It's not, you know, yeah, it's not, you know, we've got something new to sell. Isn't this great, nice and shiny? It's more, here's someone who's been using it and this is what they've been able to accomplish. Interest you? Want to find out more? Click here. Yeah. Right. And then from there, you're able to then, you know, trace that back and then give arm that. Right. Then you develop that digital funnel, the nurture stream, and you start developing. Then you get into some of the, you know, the algorithm, you know, more science side of marketing. You know, you score an opportunity that's coming in. When is it the right time to actually have someone reach out and call? Yeah. I remember early on when we were working through this model, you know, way back in, in IBM, IBM had something like 10,000 white papers, you know, wow. detailed documents all over the web. Now, granted, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of pages, right? Because, you know, it's a gigantic company. Yeah. And they had turned the switch on and said, well, if somebody downloads a white paper, call them. But if you know the buyer journey, someone who's just reading a white paper, they're at the information gathering stage. Yeah. So they're just like, look, I just want to get some information. And it was something like, 0.02% success rate of somebody calling up going, so I saw you download this white paper. Do you like to buy something? They're like, 
dude, I just downloaded the white paper, like back off. Like I'm just fact finding me out, dude. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's a, there's a right time to do that engagement, you know, and chat bots and, and, and live chat on sites. I mean, those are super helpful. And, yeah. and half the time, I mean, how many of you have gone on and it pops up and you're like, no, I don't want to talk. Great. Right. And then you say, at some point I'm going to be ready. And, and the challenge, this is that art and science, is when is that right time to engage them with that next level you know, of, of, uh, of conversation? And, and everybody's going to be different. So there's never a straight line. We've all drawn buyer journeys. And we've all said, logically, it follows these three steps or five steps or seven steps, depending on you know, who you subscribe to. Nobody ever follows it, right? Yeah. I mean, not in a straight line. They come in every you know, six ways a Sunday, and you have to adapt. But yeah. that's the beauty of marketing is that it's always evolving. That's the personal side of it. That's where those yeah. algorithms don't, you know, can't solve it. Yeah, you can't just program it and then say, I'll check back in a month and see how it went. It just but doesn't work that way. People do that. It's uh, it's unfortunate because there's missed opportunities there. Well, it sounds like Calyx has this opportunity just to ex- continue just to grow and explode and do more and more because of just really the market's kind of the wind is in your sales. Just based yeah, on the economic to an extent. I, I would say I would, I would chop the market up into kind of three bands. There's... The top third are really excited and, and, and motivated, and, and they are an, an innovation partner that is aligned well for us to partner with. Then there's that middle tier where maybe the whole company isn't fired up to do that, but there's certain catalysts inside that get it. And they know that you know with the, the advent of 5G, which is coming, and it's going to be coming soon, it's going to speed up a lot of this transformation. And there's going to be many that are going to be caught wrong-footed on the back end of this, right? And there's going to be overbuilding and all of a sudden they're going to become irrelevant. There's some that get this. They've seen, they've seen it coming and we can help them be that catalyst of change inside their organization. And then there's that bottom third that you know a lot of these small regional cooperatives, they're the only player in their region. The only reason why they're in their region uh, because you know, Connect America funding you know, is, is their source to help build out into very disparate rural reaches of America that it doesn't make sense for most other players even attempt it because there's not a concentration enough of homes to make it worthwhile. So they're community owned and they're providing decent broadband and there's really not a lot of competition. So they don't have this, you know, this sense of if I don't move with the market, I'll become irrelevant. Yeah, because the consumers fine. sounds like where they who they service, they're they're the only option. They're the only option. Yes. I have, you know, and actually they happen to be a Calix customer. There's a friend of mine in, in Vermont here is the CFO of Eastern Central Fiber. So it's Eastern Central Vermont. It's outside of any of the major you know, towns and cities here. And I think it's maybe 2,700 homes. I mean, it's a relatively small footprint. But yeah. these are homes that if, if it wasn't provided by that, the best they could do is stand out their front door and hold their cell phone up and hope to get a signal. Yeah. Right? But there's no other way they're going to get connected. Yeah. So it's a necessary service and they provide a terrific service for it. You know, is Comcast showing up to say, um, you know, laying down cable to reach all these homes? Not anytime soon. So, you know, there's there's not that issue. You know, the challenge that any company has and any marketer has is there's always a goal of trying to help drive new opportunities with new customers. And that's one of the things that marketing do really well. Marketing can scale way beyond what you know field sales can do. However, there's, there's good opportunities and there's bad opportunities. You can chase revenue for the sake of it, but you may lose money on it. It may not be the right customer. Yeah. So you, know, you want to be thinking about not just, I want to acquire new interest through my digital and, and marketing outreach programs. 
but I also have to make sure that there's a quality filter. And is that the right one to spend the time and energy to really try to drive innovation? And in many cases, the answer might be no. And you need to walk away yeah. and focus on the ones that are truly going to be not only a great engagement for you, but then they become a success story for you to attract more. Yeah. Oh, the, definitely. The juice has to be worth the squeeze. Uh, I yes. think that's really where I love that. And that's in every industry. That's not just in mine, right? Everything yeah. in life too. I mean, there's right. certain things you just say, well, is this really worth it? But uh, Time value of money, right? Exactly. It's it's funny you talk about the connectivity of the home. We just redid our, our home and you know, I was How's like, oh, I'm going to have a... Oh, it was a nightmare. Redoing your home is always never fun, especially when you have four kids and right. life and everything else. And <laughs> you had a gamer or two in there. I, that I had all the you know friends who have these wired houses, and you go in there, these servers and all these cables and stuff. I'm, like, I'm going to have them rewire our house. And so I told that to contractor that was doing it. He looked at me like it's all wireless. He goes, right. we're, we're not laying any cable in here. We're not putting any wires through. Yeah. It's all coming out. You know, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that's. That's true. I, I was just stuck in my mindset right, of exactly. what it was supposed to look like and all that. And I wanted to have all these little fancy buttons. It's now like a, a shelf, a couple of shelves and a couple of pieces, and that's it. It's it's yeah, it's, yeah. you got you got your your central, you know, kind of solution hub, and then you've got, you know, depending on how big your home is and the structure, you may have a couple of mesh extender units that are, you know, plugged in and then you know you're there. I do remember uh, when I went back to business school, they were just gutting and rebuilding it. And so I spent the first year in the old building and the next second year in the new building. And they were taking us for tours. And it was exactly that where they were showing, hey, look, see these little carriages that are running all along the sides of the ceiling? They're not embedded in the wall. And it was all these different beautiful colored wires. And they're like, look, and whatever the next you know, cable or fiber thing, we can just lay it right in. We don't have to rip out any wall. Within a year, it was all wireless. And yeah. <laughs> like, what was that all for? But that's exactly it. Somebody got paid. That's a good segue going to grad school. So I always like to ask folks that, that went to grad school because there's a lot of people out there that are at a point in their career where they're maybe debating whether or not to go to grad school. Yeah. Obviously, it's worked really well for you, but was the juice worth the squeeze, in your opinion, for grad school? Yeah, I would say there were probably two main reasons. One, I had seen colleagues of mine leave ad agencies and go to the, go to the client. Like I had, I had a, a good friend that one of the large accounts at J. Walter Thompson was Clorox, right in the Bay okay. Area, right over in Oakland. And he left and, and went to the client. We're like, hey, that's awesome. But after you know, six to eight months, you know, I caught up with him and said, how's it going? Well, basically what they did is they spun me around and now I manage the agency, right? So they still saw him as the ad guy, right? He didn't come gotcha. in to be a brand manager. Now, he eventually worked his way in there, but it was a hard road to, to rebrand himself inside the company. So one, I figured I needed the MBA, a street cred, to walk in and say, I can do product marketing, right? In its entirety, not just the communication side of it. Yeah. The second was, you know, as an undergrad, as a communications major, you know, you're not really sure what the good classes are and what to take and, and all the business elements. By the way, you also had no experience to apply it to. So that's why, and I fully agree with business schools that are asking for a bigger chunk of time between undergrad and grad so you can show up with an experience. You know, on average, it's like four or five years. I think I was four years in between the two. So, you know, just getting into things of, you know, the basics of, of kind of finance, cost accounting, getting deep into market research and data analysis, conjoint analysis, and all of these other elements that can arm a marketer. 
my goal was not necessarily to become necessarily a data scientist, but I needed to know enough about it so I knew how to ask good questions. And I knew, you know, to be able to challenge a team to make sure I understood and that they were basing their decisions on statistically relevant data. I mean, all that good stuff. I wouldn't have had that, or I didn't have that at the time, just with my undergrad and just with my advertising experience. So there was a knowledge set that I, I gathered. It was the MBA badge that helped me get into the door, the level I got into. Yeah. And then that combination, when I got dropped into the room as that marketing guy, I had a, a higher level of confidence knowing I could hold my own than if I had walked in you know, straight out with an undergrad and a couple years in advertising. I think I would have been a lot more self-conscious, a lot more timid. And so those were, you know, was it worth the, you know, the juice worth the squeeze? Yeah, for me, not, not for everybody. And in many cases, what do they used to call it? You know, know, like my sister never went for an MBA, but she spent a number of years at Procter & Gamble. In the consumer packaged goods industry, that's your MBA, right? You can go anywhere from there and they're like, good, you're you're good. (laughs) We trust you. So it really depends on what industry you're in and what you're doing and who you've worked for. And and that may be just enough. It, It just depends on what you want to do with your marketing career. Yeah. I appreciate you kind of expanding on that because you hear so many folks, even in my circles, whose kids are going debating whether do they go back and, and are they going to go back to school and, you know, take on debt or time away from the work, whatever. And right. you know, I, I personally never did, but you know, the, the industry that I grew up in, you don't need the guy that gives you, that sells you the promotional products to have an MBA. And that's not really going to make a big difference. You want to make sure the quality, the service, the creativity, all that's there. But yeah, I mean, I would agree with you that you get to a certain stage of your career. I mean, I look at a lot of resumes as, you know, we're always, you know, inhaling and exhaling talent, you know, whether it's within IBM or now in Calix. Yeah, I'll give a look at where they went to school and whether they got an MBA or not, but I will spend most of my time what have they done for the last two or three years? Exactly. Right. And, and where have they done it? And what was their role? How are you going to impact my business? Yeah. Cause it's, it's literally like when you're coming straight out of undergrad, that's all you got. So, yeah. okay, I agreed. I graduated. Hopefully that gets me my first job. A couple of years later, it's still kind of relevant because it's within the relatively recent yeah. past. But once you get about a good five, six years out, it's really more about your last job. And, and doing the background checks and personality fits and all of that. I mean, that's a lot of it as well in terms of the, the culture, the environment. IBM went through a bit of a transformation as I was leaving of getting people back to the office. They felt that they had lost that connectivity. The day-to-day, seeing each other at the water cooler, the coffee machine yeah. and so forth. They, you know, they use a lot of the WeWork buildings in New York, for example, as, as a place to facilitate that. Prior to that, I'd spent, you know, when in Vermont, I'd spent 13 years working from home in Vermont. Now, that's fine for me. I can manage that. I'm in Vermont now. So, I mean, that's, that's okay for me. It's not great for everybody. Yeah. I mean, some people coming into a job and they get handled a laptop saying, okay, go home. Good luck with this. Exactly. That may not be, you know, good for them. So culture fit, in addition to what they want you to do and, and the marketing challenges that you're trying to tackle, you need to find both. And, and you can't just have the one. You keep bringing up things, which I, I love because it takes us to a, another point, which, you know, personality fits, right? Yeah. Personality tests, you know, as a leader and a marketing leader, when you're, when you're looking at not only your agencies that you're engaging with or working with, and then folks that you're looking to hire, how big does that play for you? You know, it, it, I would say earlier on in my career, it was a gut feel, you know, as most would say, like, you know, I just feel, you know, between the two, all things being equal, you know, this is what my gut's telling me. 
The neat thing is there's been a lot of, of advancements in trying to put a little bit more of a science to that art. Because granted, I've done this for a long time and I've made bad decisions too, right? <laughs> Even on that gut feeling, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know. That's how you learn. That's how you learn. I was recently introduced, and this is because our head of field operations, a guy named Michael Vaining, spent a number of years at, at Salesforce. Okay. They are a big predictive index shop. And I don't know if you've heard of Predicted Index, but I'll, I'll send you a link to the site afterwards so you can share it with your listeners. It's long-running behavioral science firm that was founded back in the 70s in Boston. And so they've been around for a very long time. They've created a, actually a very interesting, pretty simple test that now all Calyx new potential hires. It takes you about 15, 20 minutes. And you answer a series of, of questions. It's really reacting to terms and phrases that start to tease out what are your go-to behaviors right, in your current environment? And, and then it starts to map it out a little bit. And it's not necessarily there's a right or a wrong. There is no right or wrong. However, what you can do, which is really interesting, is prior to doing those interviews, you can sit down with a couple people that are going to be working with the role that you're hiring, and you can create a predictive index for the role without the person and say, well, this is what the role needs to do. And then you create a personality profile for the role. Then wow. you look at the personality profiles of the people that are applying for the role. Now, you may have a total rock star that looks totally antithetical to the personality. And you still like, you know, but they're still the best person. Let's, let's give it a go. And we're going to have to stretch them a little bit in some of their you know, not go-to strengths. And everything might be fine. But at least it makes you stop and think, is this really the right role for this person? A perfect example, and I'm going to oversimplify it, but there's an element that teases out. That works really well for me. There's there's an element of it that teases out whether you are more of kind of a type A leader, you know, driver versus someone who is very much more collaborative, right? In terms of how you make decisions, how you get consensus, and how you lead and drive a team. If you are a field sales rep, Generally speaking, you better be a pretty high A. Right? Yeah. You need to be someone totally. that is not going to you know, shy away and shrink away from failure because you're going to see a lot of failure. You're going to get a lot of rejection. And you need to have that personality that just gets right off the floor and goes right back at it again. Shakes it off, doesn't worry about it, on to the next one, on to the next one, on to the next one. Teflon so, skin. Exactly. So if you see a personality that comes across, they're really about you know, collaborative, consensus, you know, making sure that people are happy. Like That's not your sales guy. Right, that might be the customer support guy after you close the deal, and then they help manage the relationship, but they're not the one that's going to close it. Right, so there's some really cool science now starting to come to it. And I literally just came out of some training two weeks ago with the personality index predictive index team that came in to teach us how to use this tool, and it's fascinating. And the fun part is because you know we're a subscriber to the model, I have access to the tool that I was able to send it to my entire family. So I've had all my kids take it. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so, so like, so dad, what am I, what, and it's really funny, like just seeing like, wow, you're a chip off the old block. I have no idea where you came from. Yeah. You know, so it, it's, it's actually kind of fun, but it's, awesome. it's another tool that helps you make better decisions to be honest. I'm going to have to do, look into that. And I think that might be a really good topic for another show is maybe get yeah. somebody that, that talk about that because it just seems like that is really fascinating for someone like me to really look at the fact that how all these different behaviors and personality traits kind of come into play and and what you would think would be the ideal person is not when you really look at their traits and what their behaviors are. Right. Yeah. Because most people will say, you know, the industry standard is Myers-Briggs, right? And yeah. it's a really complicated and, and, you know, kind of a deep process. 
And this is different than that. And, and granted, Myers-Briggs has, a, has its own purpose. This is very much an applied to work fit and behavioral fit to the job. And so it, 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 you know, I mean, they overlap a little bit, but it's not like it's exactly the same, just a different skin on it. It really is a different kind of model. And yeah. Myers-Briggs was never really intended for what I'm referring to. Actually, it sounds like a great way also just to kind of cull down if you have, say, 10 candidates that you're thinking about or five can't whatever, right? That you're going to narrow it down. Yeah. You want to do, you don't want to interview every single one of them, but right. you figure out who's going to fall within range and then probably right. makes and this. Then, and then once they're in, that personality helps you be a better manager, right? Yeah. So another really quick example would be, a good point. There, there's an element on it that talks about kind of the, the social energy that people get. And you know the type. There's, you know, and uh, again, I'll oversimplify it, but you go to a cocktail party and you may go with your spouse. And I'll use myself as an example. Like I get energy from the room of meeting new people and being social. And I don't mind the initial small talk on how's the weather and, you know, whatever. But eventually you get to something that's kind of interesting and you might learn something you didn't know. My wife, it sucks energy out of her. What she'd rather do is find one person that she has something in common with. They go off into the corner and they'll have a two-hour conversation, right? So that's a personality. So if you think about recognition, those two people, would want to be recognized for success in two very different ways. Me, you want to give me a trophy up on stage? Hey, you know, bring it, right? Accolades, cheering, yeah. bowing to the crowd. Like, I'm okay with that, right? You put my wife on stage, you, her talking trophy, to you. you know, she, she's, she's mortified. She's like, this is embarrassing. Like, it's just, this is what she would rather have is a very meaningful conversation with her manager telling her what a great job she's doing. And she would say, that's awesome. That's all I need. But, you know, as a manager, if you know that's kind of their go-to behavior and how they'll react, you can pivot and adjust your leadership style based on, you know, what their profile is. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's great. I think we could spend an entire show talking about we this. Could. It's a great path that we just took journey down. Yeah. And it's not unique to my industry or even technology. This is just being a good marketer, being a good manager, being a good leader. I agree. And that's really what it's all about because... At the end of the day, everything that we learn is through observation and watching and, and borrowing from others, and, but making it our own through practice. And, and that's critically important because really when you think about it, no businesses truly innovate anymore. Uh, very, very few companies are innovating. They may be improving, but not innovating. And again, that could probably take us do a show for another day. But as we start to uh, get to the end of our show, Scott, I wanted to ask you uh, the one question I do ask every single guest, which is with all the information and knowledge that you've gained throughout your career, if you could go back into time to your younger self when you were just starting out your career and leave yourself one single piece of advice to help navigate the waters forward, what would that advice be? You know, it's that, that art and science element. You know, I mentioned like, you know, one of the hardest degrees these days to get, you know, not from an MBA is actually a master's in fine arts. And, and it's like, really? why that? Yeah. Because one of the core trainings of someone who's doing a master's of fine arts is about pattern recognition, right? When you're elevating, when you're evaluating art and looking for things that are really hard to spot without a trained eye and thinking about design and design thinking. I mean, those are all really valuable elements to a marketer. If you have a chance, and you know, as I said, when I you know started at IBM back in the you know late 90s, 
the web and design, I mean, we were just getting our feet wet. But this concept of user experience design, design thinking, and, and what the web and technology can do to create that kind of engagement, if you get any chance, whether it's to take a class or to sit in on a seminar and get better and better and better at that, that how does human behavior meet a digital environment? I don't see that going away in terms of its level of importance anytime soon. And so I, had I known that early on, I would have spent more time in my days at IBM getting into that because it was there. I just didn't seek it out. And I've learned it kind of on the fly through it. But if I had 10 years prior really dove into it, I think I would have been an even better marketer. Absolute rock star advice from a rock star marketer. And I, I can't thank you enough, Scott, for being a part of our show. My today. pleasure. And for everybody else that's listening and following us online, thank you so much for your support. And please make sure to follow and share this uh, podcast with your friends and colleagues. Bye-bye.